Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. In this episode, sponsored by Microsoft, it is November 2023, and I'm in Seattle for the Microsoft Ignite conference. I'm talking with Narayan Animalai, who leads product management for Azure Networking Services. And we planned a wide-ranging discussion around Holocore Fiber, networks specifically designed to support AI workloads and modern applications, Microsoft networking announcements made at the Ignite conference, and anything else, Narayan will let me sneak in there. I poked at his LinkedIn profile, and Narayan's been working on software-defined networking for a long time. I'm hoping I can get some of his take on where we're at with SDN within Microsoft, but we'll see how much time we've got. Narayan, we want to start with some of the news and interesting things from Microsoft's perspective here since we're at the Ignite conference. And Hollow Core Fiber is one of the news items. Would you give us the background of what that announcement is and what's going on there? Yeah, you heard uh, Satya talk about this in his keynote today morning. This is a uh, proprietary technology that we have acquired and it's now uh, you know, Microsoft's uh, core innovations that we are planning on for data center networks. This is sending you know packets through Hollow Core glass fiber. So instead of this being an opaque glass, you know, light is traveling through air. Uh, compressed air, you know, through the fiber. And uh, this gives us, uh, you know, 47% improvement on latency. Okay, so so just to qualify what that fiber is, we're talking literally hollow core. You said it's 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 air that the light is transferring through. Yes. I've deployed plenty of multi-mode and single-mode fiber over years. And there's glass in there, and the light is reflected around inside of that glass core. Well, what's the light moving through? It's still got to be reflecting off of something, right? Right. It's moving through compressed air. So we found a way to make light travel faster, if you will. <laughs> so that's what this is. And this is manufactured by us. Like, you know, this whole t- technology and the fiber, everything is manufactured by us. And this is something that we are putting into place already in UK regions. So we're going to do this for data center networks and then bring it along haul as well. So right now you're deploying Holocore fiber for Azure data centers? Azure or? data centers, yes. Okay. And so if my data is within an Azure data center, it could be bouncing around inside of Holocore Fiber. It could be. We're starting with the UK regions, and then we'll spread it out across the globe, and eventually it is also the long haul when you go region to region as well. So that was my next question, is what are the use cases? You did say long haul. So as in trans-oceanic? That kind of long haul, or yeah, between our regions, you know, mm-hmm. if Europe West to Europe North, we'll start with you know, shorter distances, then we'll expand it out to like you know, longer regions as well. So, is the goal to replace existing fiber, or is this just going to be additional fiber that you're laying? It's going to be an additional one that we're going to add on to existing capacity. Okay, so I do think I missed a detail here on, on why it's cool technology. We're pushing the signal through compressed air in the hollow of the fiber, but what are the benefits for me? Yeah, the benefits are number one, latency. So you're going to have lower latency between your virtual machines is running in a region or region to region. So that's your number one thing. How much lower? 47%. So somewhere around that ballpark. <laughs> Better. Okay, the speed of light is the speed of light. But again, this goes back to the points you were making earlier. We found a way to make the light move faster through the cable <laughs> is what you're saying. Yes, yes. Okay. There's a lot of uh, workloads that are ultra sensitive to latency, which can greatly benefit from this. For most workloads, wouldn't matter. But for some, we're really, really chatty and you know sensitive to latency, especially when you're innovating with AI, this is actually going to become very handy for us. So would you be specifying within Azure networking, like, hey, you want to move this particular data across this fiber because that's holocore and we're going to have a latency benefit? This won't be at a level of uh, choice at a VM level or the customers can choose, but this will be more that we're going to do like region by region. So customers automatically get the benefit without having to choose to go through holocore fiber. 
Okay. Just curious, I don't know what you can say about the interior infrastructure, but are there special optics that drive the signal across this hollow core fiber? Like I said, this technology is completely proprietary, right? So there is specific, you know, manufacturing gear, the specific way it's actually built, and a lot of optics over here that's involved in how this is actually now transmitted through this fiber. So if we do long haul, I'm going to get the same sort of latency benefit? Like if it took me 100 milliseconds to get from point A to point B before, you're saying a 47% reduction, would that translate to 53 milliseconds, something like that? Something like that. But, you know, we need to test it out to be sure about yeah, the numbers yeah. in long haul. <laughs> so this is something that we are continuing to test and deploy. Okay. But definitely there's going to be huge benefits. Is that my biggest benefit or my only benefit, latency improvements? The security as well. I mean, it's difficult to tap through the traffic that is going through this fiber as well. So you're going to also get security benefits over here. It's much secure. Because if I tap into the fiber, uh, say, because I, I want to get a copy of what's going on, what happens that would be different from traditional fiber? It's difficult to tap in. That's the difference. I, of course, the traffic has to be either encrypted by the application or we do encrypt all traffic going between data centers. So that is already encrypted. But it's going to be difficult to tap in to this fiber. That's where the security benefit comes. Got it. Okay. So if I'm a customer, am I going to see a productized offering from Azure that I could then you know check the box and know I'm going through Holocore? As of now, this is going to be an infrastructure upgrade that we want to enable for everyone, uh, not having to you know, buy or choose. Uh, but it's for the future. I mean, we'll see you know, how it plays out. <laughs> You're deploying in the UK now. Is there a timeline for deployment to other data centers, other regions? Timelines are difficult to predict. Uh, we're working on it. <laughs> so <laughs> somewhere in the neighborhood of the next you know, 12 months, I would say, we'll have more places. Okay, so this is a big investment on Microsoft's part to make this happen, a big commitment, yeah. So another topic I know we wanted to hit, Narayan, was networks that Microsoft are building to support artificial intelligence workloads. Because, And we talked about this on the Packet Pushers podcast network before. AI workloads are somewhat unique in that you're trying to make sure those very expensive GPUs are never idled because of loss in the network. So if you've got a cluster of GPUs, you need to get the chunk of math problem that they need to be solving. Everyone in the cluster needs to have their chunk of the math problem solved. If one member of the cluster is waiting for the data it's supposed to be getting, everybody's idle. Like, come on, man, we're waiting for you. And you don't want that to happen. So there have been several initiatives across the industry yep. to improve data center networking to support these kind of workloads. Yeah. Where's Microsoft at on this? It's a huge priority for us to build the networks to support these workloads, both our first-party workloads, uh, as well as, you know, future AI workloads, third-party. So when they deploy on, you know, our data centers and our, it comes to our VMs, we want to give, like, you know, uh, you know direct memory access to the guest in the most efficient way. And uh, we are building these backend networks, uh, you know, to be uh, low latency, higher bandwidth, and uh, uh, less loss, uh, you know, data loss. And there are some technology choices that we're making that I cannot talk too much about right now in the podcast. <laughs> but one of the things that we are focusing on is expanding the scope of these networks where if it was just, you know, within a cluster, now we're focusing more on cross-cluster so that we can have like larger workloads run without a capacity constraint and all of them can benefit from this high-speed network. So, okay, I'm trying to zoom in. Let's zoom out. The networks that you're building to support these AI workloads, are they going to be like dedicated rack that just have this kind of functionality and are going to be only these specific sort of workloads belong in these racks? Yeah, we're definitely going to have like separate GPU racks, which we could offer it to first parties and third parties, so multi-tenant, right? Uh, not to specific ones. But 
the GPU racks are you know dedicated for these kind of workloads. Yes, so you have general purpose and you have storage racks and you have GPU racks, but GPU racks would be for these kind of you know, workloads. Now you mentioned a little bit earlier that a lot of what Microsoft is doing is uh, might be proprietary. Would there be proprietary magic happening here too? Could be. I mean, uh, I, I can't be sure about it. About it. whether it's anything's proprietary or not. We'll have white papers and whatnot documented. So I don't think there's any big secret here. But there could be parts that you know could be proprietary as well. So I'll, we'll have uh, racks that are. Uh, set up with custom Ethernet, high bandwidth Ethernet to support GPU clusters. Yep. And then how does that look to me as a customer? What do I see? So you will opt into this from a different VMSQ standpoint. So if you have a workloads that you want to run, we'll have for a array of virtual machines you know, with the different you know, GPU families that you could opt into so that your workload will go and get deployed into these racks. So from your standpoint, it's a different VMSQ that you're opting into. Of course, you could have these Azure OpenAI service, which is something that you can build on top of. And when you're doing that, you know, that's another way for you to get deployed into these racks as well. But now we've been talking about artificial intelligence as being the use case here, but is that the only use case? Not necessarily. I mean, I've seen like you know, customers use in applications where there's a high processing uh, needs have used GPU as well. I mean, uh, it's not just AI all the time. So you would anticipate customers having an uptake that is beyond. Yeah. You know, would it be useful for things like just you know straight up Kubernetes clusters with a lot of microservice deployments where you got a lot of chatter between the microservices? Would it be interesting there? Yeah, it could be. And I've also seen scenarios where you know media authoring, you know, where you know if you go look at you know the studios where they have like these. Uh, developers doing like a lot of you know uh, creative media, you know they need a lot of uh, processing as well. So that's another use case that we have seen a whole lot. Leaning hard into the GPU side of things, though, actually, yeah, okay, okay, it's it's less going to be you know more uh, boring day to day compute, and it's definitely going to be leaning yep. harder into the the GPU side. That's of things. true. Okay, so then as a customer, I'm opting into those VM types. It so happens that it's going to have an improved low latency, very fast network on the back end, but there's nothing special I have to do to take advantage of that. You okay. just have to opt into those VM SKUs. Mm-hmm. Are those VM SKUs available today? Yeah, there are some already available today. The GPU ones are available today, today, and uh, there'll be more of them and you know, that we'll be offering as well. Okay, okay, more coming. Yeah, very good. Now, here at Ignite, there's been a ton of uh, smaller announcements. I think we hit the, the, the really interesting yeah. ones, the, the big, you know, kind of cool, new tech, uh, exciting ones already. But then, uh, then there's stuff that are going to you know, affect us on, on operations on a day-to-day basis. Virtual Network Manager is, yeah. uh, is GA now. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so a specific uh, VNet Manager is our way to simplify the network management in Azure. You know, when customers have like a one virtual network or two, they could manage it by themselves. But they were a big deployment. You know, they end up creating many VNets, and they want to connect between these VNets, they want to administer like security policies on this VNet that are consistent. And that's when, you know, they look for management solutions uh, like the VNet Manager, which is a very easy to use API driven, you know, and a great portal experience as well, where you could manage VNets together, uh, you know, and you could have connectivity policies that you can administer on how these VNets connect to one another. And you can also set these policies so that when new VNets come up, they automatically join the group and become a member of this connectivity group. And then admin rules uh, that is got GA today uh, is actually your, think of your old, you know, IT group policy push where the IT admins can come up with uh, a set of like, you know, security policies that they want 
to be uh, you know implemented or deployed across a network estate and uh, that's what admin rules gives you so once you configure these rules then it you can put it on a group of vnets uh, and then it it'll automatically get applied and no one would be able to you know bypass those rules so that's got ga today so hierarchically they that those rules are going to get uh, evaluated and and enforced first yes. below anything that might be applied to a specific vnet exactly yeah okay before you do nsg rules on the subnet level or nsg rules on the nic level before any of these things your administrative rules will get applied first and there's something that you cannot like the the local the admin of the vm uh, cannot override mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so you said that's ga now now so that's that's available to me today i can hop into uh, to azure and see that that functionality exists okay yep excellent yeah Uh, another one there's a tech preview of of an ipam function that you yep. bring into vnet manager there's been a long ask from our customers asking us for help <laughs> to manage their ip address estate uh, you know many of them are still using excel uh, to note down what ip prefixes they use where and they always sometimes end up creating ips that are overlapping in different vnets then they figure out they cannot now peer them or connect between them so this has been long request they've been asking so we're doing a tech preview it's available only in vnet manager where you could sign up to manage your ip address space now what you could do is you could assign a, a big lot and then you could you know start drawing from it and then use it in azure but you can also take some islands of it and then say you're marking it up for outside use like it could be on premises or other clouds and azure ipam would be able to you know work with that as well i was going to ask you just how much functionality is there it's not merely documentation it's true ipam it's true ipam it's going to show you usage it's going to show you like you know uh, how much of ip address is left your capacity um, and it can actually also will be in the drop downs when you create a vnet where instead of uh, specifying an address prefix for a virtual network you can just drop in and you know select your ipam and you can ask for a vnet of certain size it will automatically allocate a ip address for you so and we are also working to import uh, your existing on prem tools maybe like an excel sheet where you're maintaining all these things we'll be able to read that automatically and then uh, kind of you know ease you into this ipam solution so yeah it is have a lot of functionality v4 i'm going to assume what about ipv6 uh, it, it'll also do ipv6 so ipv is something that you know we're taking as a standard uh, within microsoft so since you asked about ipv6 everything that we do uh, new features is ipv6 compliant and we're also having a huge push behind the screens to have all services support ipv6 so this one will support ipv6 as well so let's have a commercial break for ipv6 here for a second <laughs> then how is ipv6 going within azure we have done a lot of things with ipv6 where we support a proper dual stack we support ipv6 uh, you know on the internet path you know you could have ipv6 public uh, you know nic uh, on the vm we support on the load balancer uh, now we are also getting up to the other levels where uh, we are just announcing preview of ipv6 support for application gateway which is our layer 7 load balancer we are working on uh, ipv6 support across all the other services as well uh, networking services as well as the like, you know, non networking ones so there's a huge push that's going on so you will hear from a lot of these ipv6 announcements they may not make headlines always but they, you'll see somewhere somebody says okay my service now supports v6 endpoints so that push is happening you know internally in microsoft i can bring my own ipv6 i believe you can bring your own ipv6 you know space and create a virtual network that will be a dual stack though we don't support ipv6 only networks yet so you'll have to bring a v6 and a v4 mm-hmm. and yes but then you can allocate uh, out of that you can create subnets with v6 and uh, you can put v6 rules in nsg you can put v6 you know route table entries in udr we support all that and like i said we'll also support ipv6 only vnet in the future
Going back to IPAM then. So the IPAM is fully featured. It's in tech preview. I can ask for it. And, you know, if, if approved, I can get it and start working with it. Yep. Uh, is there a tie into DNS with IPAM? We're looking into that. Uh, as we, a lot of people have asked for, you know, DNS tie-in as well. But as of now, the tech preview does not have any DNS tie-in yet. Uh, but we could in the future. And I'm going to assume there's an API out in front of this IPAM. Yes. Okay. It's so- all API driven. That seemed like a safe assumption, yeah. but I'd want to ask for sure. Then obviously RFC 1918 is all going to be in there. I can again bring my own IPv4 v6. It's all supported. Uh, any other features you want to highlight about the IPM? No, I would just uh, encourage you know, listeners of the podcast to go try it out and uh, sign up for Tech Preview and then give us feedback. Uh, we still have time to fix it before it goes GA. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any scaling concerns? Any size issues with IPM? Like I said, I don't think we are anticipating anything. So we have looked at a lot of samples from our existing customer use cases and what they use in Azure. And it's been tested to support all of that. So we feel pretty confident about scales. All right, another announcement, uh, Narayan. VWAN improvements in routing. You mentioned me before we started recording yep. route maps and so on. Yes. So with route maps, we can tag routes to say that, you know, this on-prem route needs higher priority than the other routes. And we can also, routing intent was announced previously, I think a few months ago. It really ties in really well as well, where you could easily point different riders to go through a secure uh, firewall you know, uh, in VWAN without having to do any kind of a UDR uh, on the VNets. So it becomes super easy to start expressing routing policies, routing intent on, on how you want this traffic you know, routed. We also support now hub to hub with VWAN. So you could also you know, have a routing intent to do. It, it goes through the firewall in the different regions before it hits the endpoint. So yeah, we're doing a lot of the simplification of route management in VWAN. Okay, so rather than just relying on traditional static routing, destination routing, you know, BGP, now I have the ability to custom map the path that I need this particular packet to take. Right. This needs to hit this particular security enforcement point, uh, you know, whatever it might be. I can map this thing through. So it's um, source routing of a kind. Yes. Now, you said tags. What is that? Like, like we have a lot of network engineers that listen to the show that are might be very curious as to how this is being implemented. Can you talk in more detail about what's going on? So it's basically when you tag a particular, you know, route prefix, uh, the VWAN, you know, controller now can associate this uh, tag to these packets. So... Uh, you could use these tags to now define policies. So if, we, if there's a, a route with this particular tag that needs to be a higher priority, then VWAN could program that into our internal systems that way. So if there are two on-premise locations that's connecting into a virtual network in Azure and both are advertising you know, prefixes, uh, you could always assign priorities on which one to honor. That's how you'll use this. And what is the tagging mechanism? Is it actually embedded somewhere in the packet like an MPLS tag or somewhere in an IP header, something like that? No, we will not put the tag on the packet itself. It will be used in the control plane of VWAN for the most part. So it's going to be looking at traffic flowing in real time and then applying enforcement. Interesting the way you chose to do that in that there are a bunch of tagging schemes that are going now and they all have their advantages and disadvantages to solve this sort of a problem. Right. But you're looking at it at at a higher level again within the control plane as as traffic is flowing by, but not embedding any kind of state into the packet itself. That's true. Yeah. That is true. So what are the use cases that you expect? You mentioned security is the obvious one. What else? I think it's ease of um, flexibility and how you route the packets. So it becomes very complex to manage because sometimes a one VNet shouldn't be talking to the other VNet 
but when you just put them on on a vvan hub by default everyone can talk to everyone so if you want to have these isolations uh, or if you want to uh, have the, the specific traffic take a different path maybe not just a security device maybe it's also another logging device or whatever for observability uh, you you are able to kind of you know chain this easily which otherwise is a difficult problem so it's it's a visibility fabric sort of application that's a use case there it security but micro segmentation even feels like you could you could get kind of crazy with it really that east west control if you wanted yeah i think vvan does give you a lot of east west control but it's still at a ip prefix level not at an application level where folks with micro segmentation would think you know application level tagging where they tag their workloads or and they want to express policies from those kind of tags that is assigned to microservices or our vms or applications this is more on the route tags and not that one so that's where the difference is yeah so the, okay there's somewhat less granularity there then there's an administration overhead to this as well so if you're not doing it programmatically and you're writing policies by hand to accomplish certain things that could get if you're trying to get down to a microservices or microsegmentation yeah. level that would be pretty tedious so you'd want to be thoughtful i think is the is the right thing to say about how you use this particular feature yeah okay so that is that another ga feature or is that coming soon routing map is a preview not a ga today <laughs> so uh, another feature in orion you said uh, something called bastion or developers queue walk yep. us through that yeah we are previewing the bastion developers queue so today in azure uh, we have a bastion service which you could use to rdp or ssh into your uh, vms it, it like a jump box jump box okay perfect so that you don't have to provide a public ip address on your vm right there's a lot of these attacks on passwords and whatnot and then they break into your vms and we like people not to have a public ip address just for rdp purposes that's why we built the bastion right um, so that's a service that you can use but that's a kind of a paid service you deploy into a virtual network and then you can use it on all the vms in your vnet uh now we're coming out with bastion developers queue which is a easy to use it's there by default you don't have to really deploy a service to use this and it's will be available to you in portal when you hit connect on a vm it'll use the bastion developer you know queue or the bastion service behind the screens to take you right into the vm without you having to deploy a bastion service so we are deploying a multi tenant bastion service if you will to allow for rdp access into the vms without asking users to have a public ip address but again it's a feature that's just going to be there it sounds like i don't have to turn this on i don't have to configure anything nope. it's just magic that's going to work for me it's going to be there is we we call it secure by default we want to actually move to secure by default kind of you know primitives where uh, when you deploy a vm we do not want to give that vm a public ip address by default we encourage customers not to give public ip by default and many customers today give that vm a public ip address just so that they can rdp or ssh and now we are saying you don't need to we'll give you a bastion service that is multi tenant from azure infrastructure you can just use that to just go into your vm and don't not have to have public ip do i have to hit some sort of an azure gui to enable this so we are going to have also a cli version for it so that you can actually use cli to get there but definitely there'll be portal ui so that from the portal blade you can have a connect button that takes you to this but you can also do it through you know terraform or cli and, and this exists today we're announcing preview announcing preview okay all right yet another one we wanted to talk about were uh, scalable express route uh, gateways yeah so with the express route gateways you know we are moving into a model where you don't have to worry about the number of instances of express route gateway that you have you know, from a capacity standpoint if you can tell us the min capacity and max capacity that you want to push through the express route gateway azure control plane will automatically you know 
adjust the number of instances of Express Router Gateway that is required to support the scale. So through this, you can say I want to push 40 gigs you know, through my Express Router circuit. Maybe you bought a uh, Express Router, you know, 100 gig circuit, and you, you're saying you want that's what you want to push through. We will adjust the size of it uh, based on the traffic that we see. So all we really need from you is okay, what's the max and what's the min, and then we could take care of the number of instances over here. So it's scalable, but it, it sounds elastic. It is elastic. So it's it's going to be as as big as I need it to be. Exactly. Um, and I don't have to worry about standing up a different gateway that's a larger size. It's just going to be, you know, it's going to grow and uh, and shrink as I need it. It's going to grow and shrink as it needed. And that's what we do with our firewall, by the way. So there's a similar kind of a concept that we do with firewall as well. You never deploy a number of instances of a firewall. You only pay for the firewall service. We shrink and grow. This is very similar to that. That was a lot of announcements. We just went through a lot of stuff in a hurry. Are there any ones that we missed that you wanted to talk about? There's one thing, though, that along the lines of secure by default, because this is an initiative that we are starting, and you, we talked about the Bastion Developers queue. The other thing that we are also previewing is called a private subnet. So Azure has always provided default internet access or default outbound internet access uh, for any VNet or subnet that you create or VMU that you create. Um, but now we're announcing a feature where you could ask for a private subnet, but by default, we will not give you internet outbound internet access on this particular subnet for security reasons. You could attach an ad gateway to it so that you can go out, um, but by default, there will be no internet connection uh, you know, for you to go out. So again, it goes with the secure by default kind of a theme where we want to introduce m- many of these primitives so that you know we can, by default, start secure. That's less of a new feature and more of a, a change in the default posture when you deploy. But it's still an option thing, though, because we don't want to surprise customers by not doing it by default. <laughs> it's an option that they can opt into, and then we can provide it that way. Okay. Well, we got some time left in the podcast, Narayan. I know you're speaking on behalf of Microsoft, but I know your background goes very deep on software-defined networking and so on, which uh, is a topic that we follow very closely on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network and on Day 2 Cloud. It's come up an awful lot. As you've followed SDN and its evolution over the years, how has Microsoft been adopting SDN? Is there a lot of that actually happening internally behind the scenes? Also, SDN is a core to our networking within data centers, right? I think uh, we started with the right architecture uh, where we had like different layers that we could scale at will. I would say the management plane, the control plane, and the data plane. The management plane is all of the APIs that you see that users can call into, and that can be scaled independently, you know, totally independent of the management control plane or the data plane. Um, and then we have like a lot of these regional controllers as the control plane that the management plane calls into. Uh, the kind of now translate this. I think we are we run a lot of virtual networks or overlay networks for our customers, right? There is a Pepsi network, Coke network. That's like, so, so we translate these management plane operations into a specific control plane operation through the control plane, um, and then uh, we have a separate data plane network where these are now sent to our host, where translate these into um, you know actual network functions. Uh, that we program on the host. Uh, so we are never bottlenecked with anything, any layer. That's how we are able to scale uh, and go to different regions and, and support all of this humongous scale that we have today. That's kind of the answer I expected, and it's still you know, mind-blowing you know, on some level. You have all these regional controllers, but everything. You said the management plane, everything's reporting back into some kind of a regional controller yep. that is then you know, programming the, the forwarding plane to do whatever it is that it needs to do. Right. In a multi-tenant aware environment, 
with virtual network functions that you've deployed at scale wherever you need. Yeah. And that's the entirety of your network, it sounds like. Everything functions that way, I mean to say. Yeah, everything that you see as features or, or capabilities functions that way. Then of the layer after that is a physical network where when the packet leaves the host, that's just you know traversing our physical network on the physical space. You know, there's the, the it, we completely encap it. <laughs> outside is all physical network. The the virtual packets, the virtual IPs are inside, and our routers never see them. They all route based on physical IP addresses. That's a physical data center network, and then it goes to the WAN and whatnot. But the beauty is. Uh, from in the virtual network space, there is no scale limitations or, or bottleneck or, or choke points uh, because it's completely distributed. It's uh, the action happens on every host, and uh, and then the hosts are programmed by the controllers, uh, the regional controllers, which can scale independently. So if I have to bring up a VNet with like you know thousand VMs, and the next day I want to scale it up to ten thousand VMs. I have no issues. I just have to now program, you know, maybe a thousand more nodes, but it just uh, goes from top to bottom. I'm not bringing in any hardware. I'm not bringing in any gateway. I'm not sending packets through a particular choke point. <laughs> so that's what allows us to scale. There's still the physical network, though, as you pointed out. So on, on some level, ultimately, there, there could be a bottleneck somewhere. You've, you've got to be chasing that um, all the time where you must be moving from 100 to 400 to whatever's next. But we are constantly also expanding our physical network capacity as well as our inter-region or our WAN capacity all the time. So, you know, we have gone from, you know, 100 gig, like you said, you know, we're working on, like, you know, 400 gig next to making our T1s and T2s, you know, be more, have higher capacity. They're redundant. So we over-provision them. We don't run at them at full capacity. I mean, so the physical network, you know, has a lot of capacity that it can shuttle traffic back and forth, you know, within the clusters and, and whatnot. Uh, same with our van, we're, we're constantly, you know, buying and expanding our, our circuits and our fiber paths. So, you know, we always keep on top of it. What kind of growth and capacity do you have to plan for? We are always ahead of the capacity planning. We never let it run hot. Uh, let me just put it that way. Mostly it's redundant as well. There are a lot of redundant paths because we optimize for path going down and not having any impact to the customer uh, more than trying to fill the capacity. So there are a lot of redundant paths. They may run hot, but there are many redundant paths in our network. What Microsoft is doing is basically the bleeding edge. You have that need and you have that scale. You have those requirements. In other words, from my perspective, you couldn't do the network that you do otherwise. The traditional networking just out the window. You couldn't do it. I mean, you could build a, you know, a seven-tier leaf spine or something, I guess. But practically speaking, because of what you're delivering and with the multi-tenancy as, a, as one of the largest clouds in the world, you have to do what you're doing. There are a lot of what I would call traditional old-school network engineers, the CLI jockeys, those of us that uh, grew up cutting our teeth at the CLI, writing router, BGP, AS number, and then you know putting in address families and making things happen by hand artisanally, one device at a time. Right. And the world Microsoft is in is foreign to us because we don't operate at that scale, let's say. Right. But yet we're being pulled into that of necessity. We're having to learn network automation, let's say, which would be some subset of software-defined networking, I guess. What advice do you have for the graybeards out there that are like, you're going to rip the CLI from my hands when I'm cold and dead, not before. But yet we're facing this need for network automation. How do we make the leap and get into the new way, the modern networking? So I think the cloud has really changed 
the networking landscape and made it a lot simple i would say i do get people complaining that you know i don't have the usual controls i'm used to in in my data center networks you know uh, and you just simplify it way too much for me uh, but i think that's the balance that we are trying to strike as well i think everything is programmatic i think that you want to let go and then have the the controllers handle for you and you know programming an acl or programming a route uh, becomes just an api call i think that's it it's a new thing where you, you just have to accept but the good thing is you know there is a lot of observability improvements that we have to make i think sometimes the issue is not so much so about people not trusting it they just don't see it and they cannot verify it and that makes them a bit not sure about it right like for example if you're doing everything on your own you can go into any particular system and ask for give me the route map over here or give me the acl you can just draw it out on the particular endpoint and validate and verify uh, but in the cloud network people feel that you know i just don't have the control i don't know which packet is going where i'm, I'm not i just I'm, i didn't program it myself so what we have to do i think i think in the cloud networking is provide more visibility provide more observability provide more controls so uh, that is easy for the old networking architects to feel comfortable about and give them the troubleshooting tools as well old that's harsh <laughs> <laughs> experienced experienced networking architects so you you hit on something that i think is important there is an element to programmatic networking where you need to let go a bit and just trust the process you're going to get the result that you're looking for it didn't name things the way you would have named them and you know there may be some other details that if you were writing the code yourself you would have put these little things in that would make you happy it doesn't mean the job's not getting done that is true it is getting done but like i said what we really have to improve and this is something that in the cloud you know people like me have the responsibility to do is ensure we are able to provide that that observability back to the users and the troubleshooting today the biggest complaint i get is packet gets dropped or connection lost i just don't know where this is happening i have no clue there is a black box for me i'm just i'm here if it were my network i would have had many tools i could have employed and found out is your network and I'm, I just don't know there are tools that you can deploy in the cloud that will provide you with this they're they're spendy but they they exist but so you're you're saying things that you as 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 your networking would want to provide natively exactly yeah that's true so we want to provide more visibility that you know if a packet from vm1 to vm2 didn't get delivered where did it get dropped uh, i mean can you re-simulate a packet and see what path would it take we are doing a lot of things on this front giving you a lot of simulation data and what not but this is where i think we could do better uh, this is where you can see advancements coming as unlikely as it would be because of how you guys do capacity i mean if it this drop between vm1 and vm2 and it's not a software thing it's not like it got dropped by an acl it actually got dropped down the physical layer maybe maybe there's a failing optic inside the azure network yeah would there be a way that you could share uh, telemetry in a safe multi-tenant way that uh, that i as the azure cloud network operator could could see that that's what happened more than the details at least what we really want to show is if we can key in your source and destination we can you know investigate the paths between these two vms and then we can tell you if there was any problem in the underlying network that could have caused it or not 
I mean, you cannot be certain because every path takes a different path. So packet one could have taken a very different path in the network and packet two could take a very different network because <laughs> it's all ECMP inside our networks. You are not guaranteed to go through the same set of devices. However, we could, uh, you know, analyze all these different, you know, routes a packet could take and report on the health of the network itself. Mm -hmm. That gives a clue to users as to, okay, that could be something physical. And plus, we could be very sure about the, the software optics too, whether it really left the node or not. We can provide those logs on the source and destination so we could see who actually sent it, who saw it last, and who didn't see it. That stuff we could actually definitely give. Yeah, that would be interesting. It's also interesting what you were saying about ECMP in that a lot of us that have built out ECMP fabrics, the way hashing is done depends on what you're hashing on, right? But um, typically, a flow is going to take the same path. But are you saying it could be more diverse than that? No, no. Different connections, I said, could take the, the, the same flow will take the same path. Okay, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe a future-looking question for you regarding artificial intelligence and operations. So... AI as a workload is one thing. I'm talking about AI as it would affect uh, operations and, and maybe network operations specifically. Yeah. That's seeming like we're coming to the place at an industry where that is real. That is, we can absorb network data, network telemetry, logging information, aggregate it all together, tag it and uh, put it into a machine learning model and then apply AI to it and get a variety of useful data out of it. Are, are you seeing that? Is that interesting to uh, to Microsoft? Very yeah. interesting. And and it's not just about the, the data path, the world, what we see in the network, but also the control plane. So because as with Azure, we have a ton of control plane data on how the networks are configured, right? And, you know, who's deployed where. And when you have that data set, and then you have the real-time data set that you can getting out of the, the networks uh, on where you see the packets flowing and uh, what kind of packets are flowing and what information are there on the headers. We could now use that to generate a ton of insights, you know, and this is where I think uh, there could be a lot of, you know, opportunity for us and innovation can happen. And things like, you know, log analytics and, you know, using AI services to understand the data better and come up with insights. Um, it's, it's definitely an area that we are very much interested in. So there's two ways I could see that data being applied. One for, for Microsoft itself, as you're operating the Azure network, you get insights that make Azure better or result in new services that you might offer. But then there's also consumer, customers that are consuming the Azure network maybe be interested in some of that as well. Do you see use cases on both sides? Totally. I, I was talking more about the consumer side use case. Of course, we can use it internally for our own you know, telemetry and our systems and you know insights for our monitoring systems. But then we could also give it back to the customers so that they can see much better what's happening in their networks in their cloud where we could tell them you know any condition going on anywhere or how can they better deploy the network you know where do we see some issues with the control plane because we could use those control plane models and we can we can push it through our ai systems and find insights well, you make it sound so trivial, but practically speaking, the amount of data that you could process or would need to process has got to be massive. Do you have the AI, the GPU capabilities to actually throw at a problem like this? This is why when, when we really take it to a cost, consumer level specificity, then it has to be a separate service that the consumers can opt into so we can then do it for those, right? Now for all the data, like you're saying, that'll be too much for us to handle at one time, uh, but we could offer specific services where based on customers opt-in, you know, we could do that. Well, this has been a great conversation, Narayan. And if people want to reach out to you because they got more questions or some feedback for you, how do they do that? Yeah, I think my Twitter handle is something that I gave. So uh, we can tag that along. My LinkedIn profile as well is there. So 
those are good places for anyone to reach me. Okay. And if there's people that want to just investigate what's going on with Azure Networking, maybe catch up with some of the announcements that are here at the Ignite 2023 show, any uh, recommendations for them? Yeah, there are. Uh, we did a product roundtable today where we had like a lot of these announcements in, in, in a deck. I'm sure that will get sent out. Uh, you know, uh, people can get a hold of that. And and we will have uh, you know, blogs in the future to recap what announced in Ignite. So that's another way. But always LinkedIn is another good option as well to reach out uh, if they have any specific questions. Okay, very good. And if you're listening to this, I mean, there's an Azure Updates page that includes an RSS feed if you wanted to catch all the latest announcements coming out about Azure broadly, including several of the announcements that Narayan and I talked about today. Uh, there is, of course, the Azure blog, and there's lots more detail within those blog posts explaining how these different services work, that if you're an engineer and you're curious, that's that's the place to go find out some more detail. And, uh, and my thanks to Microsoft for sponsoring today's episode and to Narayan for appearing on Day 2 Cloud. But to you out there listening, you are the most important part of this podcast. Seriously, virtual high fives to you for tuning in, you awesome human. And if you have suggestions for future shows, hey, you could hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm there. You can find me if you search for Ethan Banks, and I am happy to connect with you. And if you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and websites are there. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development. Our lineup of podcasts these days includes heavy networking, Kubernetes Unpacked, Heavy Wireless, Network Break, Heavy Strategy, IPv6 Buzz, and of course, the show you're listening to right now, Day 2 Cloud. We offer even more than that, though. Newsletters, a 100% free Slack group, engineering blog posts, industry news coverage, and and there's even more stuff. There really is if you dig around. Packetpushers.net, once again, for all of those things. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.